0: This is Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against rising social risks and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the CEO of Adamantine Energy. This season, I'm talking to game-changing leaders in the oil and gas industry to explore how companies translate decarbonization aspiration into action. And today I speak with Matt Kolazar, who is Chief Environmental Scientist at ExxonMobil. Matt has a BS in chemical engineering. He started his career as an environmental engineer at the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company. He joined Exxon just a few years later and has served in many roles before his current chief environmental scientist role today. You can learn more about Matt's really interesting biography in our show notes. Now, here's my conversation with Matt Kolazar. Matt Kolazar, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast.
1: Thanks, Tisha. It is my honor and privilege to be here.
0: Well, it's so nice to have this conversation um, after so many interesting conversations you and I have had at various collaborations over the years. And one of the things you and I have talked about is that there is a perception out in the world that Exxon doesn't take climate change seriously. But I know you and I know your commitment and your expertise. Can you talk a little bit about your work in the climate space?
1: I would love to. And Tisha, our work together has taught me that you can't and shouldn't try and fight perception, but um, ExxonMobil certainly plans to play a leading role in the energy transition. And I think we've been significantly better um, over the last year or two at communicating that. And I'm proud that we've sort of taken that leadership role and not only actually going to execute the work and the transition, but communicating that publicly. We've been vocal supporters of the Paris Agreement since inception, and I think uh, we've been around for 130 years, providing energy and other products the world needs, um, and we continue to keep doing that.
0: So let's not assume that our audience knows that Exxon has made some really notable climate commitments this year. Um, Can you talk just at a very high level about what those are and why they're meaningful?
1: I think there's a few that are really important, Um, and I'll go back a year ago with ExxonMobil's creation of the Low Carbon Solutions Organization, which was our very structured way to start to commercialize some of these low carbon technologies in this portfolio, Um, and that's important, uh, and that really showed a signal that we meant to make this a business and part of our long term strategy. And and right off the bat, with that announcement a year ago, we identified 20 new carbon capture opportunities that we're trying to commercialize around the world. From a commitment standpoint that, that came on the heels of that, over the last year, we've come out with a net zero greenhouse gas commitment by 2050. And we've made some Which is a long term commitment. But we've also made, we thought it was important to show near term and mid term commitments as well. And so we've also just recently come out with 2030 plans on 20 to 30% reduction in corporate greenhouse gas intensity, 70 to 80% reduction in corporate methane intensity, 60 to 70% in corporate wide flaring. And, And those I'm particularly proud of because that's been core to my work. End of routine flaring in the Permian Basin by the end of this year which a few years ago was probably not even on our radar, um, but really proud of the team's work and going after that. And maybe a little more subtle, but also important, we we jumped into a certified gas pilot, also in the Permian with a MIQ, which is stewarded by the NGO, Rocky Mountain Institute. And so, again, a pretty broad suite of us really jumping into this energy transition and making commitments to have lower carbon products.
0: I love hearing all those details. And I I do want to give you a compliment, which is that I was speaking confidentially to one of your international competitors. And they said, Tisha, you really need to study Exxon's detailed commitments because they've gone the extra mile in how they articulate, how they're going to operate operationalize these. And, and most people don't dig in to that level. But I thought that was really Notable that those who are paying attention to the details are recognizing that that while Exxon came in later than some peer companies to these commitments, they came in in a really robust way. So I, I want to ask you a little bit about what does this look like within the company culture. What, I, I think it's easy to imagine outside that Exxon, the machine, you know, it ha- has this reputation, but you're in the company. Are there shifts happening in culture around talking about climate and being committed to climate? Because these things you detailed, like no routine flaring, these require real operational commitments and changes from the field to the corner office. Tell us a little bit about what that looks like to you in, in practice.
1: That's a great question. We we these announcements are such classic ExxonMobil. You know, we joke sometimes that there's still a lot of our original company, Standard Oil, which, you know, which, took its pride to run its business consistently and with standards, with consistent plans. And there's still a lot of that in our DNA. And and while we weren't, other companies, our peer companies had made these announcements around the net zero and, and strong greenhouse gas reductions earlier than we were, we were always working on it. And I think it was very important for us from a culture standpoint to have a strong sense of how that was going to look and exactly how we were going to do that. And so we've talked about uh, developing roadmaps for every single asset that we own globally. And I know we talk a lot and people see us here in the U.S. particularly as mostly an upstream oil producer, but we're one of the last few integrated oil companies that has one of the world's largest chemical companies, a significant fuels and lubes organization with refineries and lubricant plants, And so to go across the scale of that organization globally and ask each asset to say, I need to know exactly how you're going to do that. And we have that. And we'll have that in great detail by the end of this year for most major operating assets. Um, I do think, I mean, I can't see inside all of our peers, but I do know that's something that does make us a little bit unique, and, and which is why I think we waited to, to publicly announce that we wanted to make sure we had line of sight. Um, and it does speak to our culture. And your question is, has it evolved or shifted? I don't know. I don't think so. I think it's always been our core to, to make sure we have certainty and we're, we're a company of engineers and scientists, and we want to see that in front of us. And, and we love the challenge.
0: That's so heartening on multiple levels. I'm amazed that there's these detailed road roadmaps at the asset level because it speaks to something that we at Adamantine run into our work all the time which is as you know Matt I encourage our clients to make aspirational goals and the engineers and scientists who run companies say I will not do that without being able to do the math and um, axon you're telling us has really, embraced the challenge of doing the math. That's my shorthand for these (laughs) detailed roadmaps, but that's so encouraging. Do you have any other stories you'd like to share about things that are giving you confidence that Exxon is up to the challenge of meeting these targets?
1: I think it really speaks to how what our company is and and who we're made up of. And all these low-carbon solutions and ideas that we've talked about publicly over the last 18 months, And while some of those products and solutions may look different to the outside world, whether it's carbon capture and sequestration or biofuels or hydrogen or nature-based solutions, the underlying skills are what we're really good at the science, subsurface, I mean, we have a lot of experts on subsurface geologists and geoscientists, and so that transitioning from exploring for hydrocarbon to now also looking for opportunities for sequestration is a natural transition, and people are engaged and really uh, motivated at same skill sets. Moving carbon dioxide to sequestration places as pipelines and pipeline integrity and rights-of-way, we're very good at that. Hydrogen generation. We've been producing hydrogen for 100 years at our manufacturing facilities. We're very good at that. Biofuels, again, we have refineries all over the world. And that's a natural connection for us. So, this isn't really a step out for us. We haven't gone out and hired all new skill sets or created massive new organizations. Our low carbon solution business was created to start to commercialize all that and create new businesses around existing skill sets, quite honestly.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. You're really making the point better than I can, Matt, about why huge oil and gas companies are the key to accelerating the energy transition and the key to addressing climate, because there's so much history, experience, know-how, infrastructure. And when um, companies turn their attention to this work, the whole world benefits. So So I love that. Thank you. I didn't expect that answer. I loved it. And while we're on innovation, let's talk about this satellite collaboration (laughs) that you have. So um, I I just to connect the the Adam and Teen branding dots, uh, my last podcast interview was with uh, Mark Brownstein of EDF. So he is very, uh, he makes a very compelling case of why we must focus on reducing methane emissions. They also have a satellite (laughs) situation. So can you talk a little bit without, without you don't need to comment on on, um, EDF satellite, but I'm curious about your satellite collaboration. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? And how did you decide to engage in that way?
1: I will say, and I know it's sort of unprompted, but I, I give great credit to Environmental Defense Fund and Mark's leadership. Uh, I mean, they've done unbelievable work it, it, uh, and they have world-class scientists, uh, particularly in the methane space. So I, I give them a lot of credit on the work they've done. And, and the satellite work is really nothing short of genius, quite honestly, that they've been able to collectively pull that together together and given given the vision that the world should look different and there's other tools available. So with that said, and we've been working on this space, and again, I'm we are blessed, and my team is blessed to have deep expertise in all forms of methane detection, including satellite. And so we've been looking at that for years and have worked with Mark and his team on for over a decade on all the new science and technology capabilities. Our announcement in December was really just an add-on to all that work. We've announced work on ground-based continuous sensors, aerial airplanes, and and we know satellites are going to be somewhere in that solution set. And we've seen the advent of lower cost deployment, the detection capabilities have, have come, a step change improvement. And so we really like the satellite as a, an important piece of the puzzle for a couple of reasons. One, it provides global coverage, which is important for ExxonMobil, but really important for the industry. And I think Mark would say the same. If you get the right constellation up in enough satellites, you, you start to have near real-time monitoring. And again, if you do it right, it becomes a cost-effective emissions monitoring program. And I do think that's a, a gap in the global industry right now given the unique nature of, of the upstream oil and gas and so widely dispersed geographically and in parts of the world where you may not have opportunities to do anything but satellites, I think it's a really important part of the solution set. And we're really excited to, to work with our partners in that. And, um, you know, what I what I tell our team and I'll, I'll tell anyone that asks and says, you know, is this the company you're locked into? Maybe, and this might be the technology, but I, I remind ourselves to stay humble none of these technologies existed five years ago. None of them. And so to think that we're, we've are we landed at the right spot today would be naive. And so I'm excited of what five years from now looks like. On the other hand, I shouldn't wait for that either. I have tools today to make an, a, a big step change difference. And that's why right? we're excited for, for the EDF methane sat, we're excited for other technologies that have been announced, and we're certainly excited for our work. We will be right back to the Energy Thinks podcast, but are your company's ESG efforts falling behind the sector? Find out by downloading ESG in 2022, Adam Mateen's latest white paper, to find out which moves ESG leaders in oil and gas are making and what's now standard across the industry. Download ESG in 2022 today at energythinks.com. And now, back to the show.
0: You paint such a compelling picture, and I had never thought about a constellation of satellites providing near real-time methane emissions um, information. I'm also curious your thoughts on this one of my takeaways from my conversation with mark was the level of transparency around methane emissions globally is about to undergo a revolution anyone will have access to so much methane emissions data regardless of location or industry do you think that's going to change the way people the stakeholders investors think about methane emissions
1: certainly and, and it's already starting to have an effect there are a handful of satellites up there that don't have the resolution of what EDFs will have or what we've, what we've talked about, but they're still out there finding some very large uh, methane releases that industry and the world should address. Um, and so ExxonMobil and myself, we agree, there's, there's a huge opportunity here to make a step change in methane. What I do think, I think this is going to resolve itself pretty quickly. Um, Again, I give a lot of credit to EDF and some of his peer organizations of raising the awareness and pushing the science and technologies to a point where it's commercially viable and deployable. But we know how to fix almost all these sources of methane emissions. Fixing them has not been the problem. Our work has shown and, and and it's borne out by the work the International Energy Agency has done. Methane mitigation is, is relatively inexpensive compared to other greenhouse gas mitigations that society has to take over the next you know 30 to 50 years. So it's really about making sure the world knows where those methane emissions are. And that's going to happen very quickly. And I think the mitigation is going to fall right behind it.
0: Mm, that's really interesting. And I, I love the comment you made earlier about keeping our humility because our our resources are evolving. <laughs> Innovation is happening so fast. So th- that, that brings me to a question for you. You are the chief environmental scientist at Exxon, which I translate as Chief Geek in charge, which is a compliment coming from me. But what what does it actually mean? What does it mean to you? What is what is that what is that role?
1: I mean, it's a fantastic role, right? It's a it's the job of a lifetime, honestly. And my primary role, Chief Geek, I like that. Um <laughs> we are blessed, ExxonMobil is blessed with some extremely talented scientists and engineers with deep expertise in really all areas of technology and sustainability and and our our product solutions. So my primary role is to help coordinate that and lead a global strategy, not only across all those sustainability focus areas, but across the diverse corporation that ExxonMobil is from our upstream and unconventional shale to our deep water developments, to our chemical companies and our refineries you know, there's a lot to keep track of in that. And there's a lot of similarities across the business and across the sustainability focus area. So a lot of my role is to help coordinate that and craft it into corporate strategies and inform our senior leaders on, you know, what steps we should take next.
0: Well, I will say just having known you and having some exposure to your expertise that I think Exxon is lucky to have such an engaging, intelligent, authentic person in the role. So, But I'll move on from that awkward compliment (laughs) to my next question, which is, so as chief environmental scientist, you're building a team and you work across the organization. One recurring theme across our audience is trouble with retention and recruiting. And I'm curious, what are you thinking about? What kind of culture do you have to create to attract and retain Diverse talent and create an inclusive culture. What are the things you're thinking about?
1: My experience has been our, our the value system for our younger workforce at the high, at the highest level is still the same and really hasn't evolved that much. People still want to do rewarding work, fairly compensated, uh, be respected. What I think has shifted and pretty notably here over the last two to three years is what rewarding means to them, mm. and. Almost universally, and in my role, I do get to do a lot of mentoring for young folks. People want to know, not traditionally of how do I, my, you know, I'm not getting promoted fast enough or role advancement, or I, I need more responsibilities, which for the traditional ones is now it's universally, I want to be part of the solution. I mm. want to be part of the energy transition. How do I do that? How do I get into the sustainability organization? How do I get your job? How do I get into low carbon solutions? And that's a shift. And that's really encouraging. And so you know, part of our my role is to say, there's a couple answers is, you're already doing it. If you're working in a refinery, your future is gonna have a lot of biofuel implications, right? We just committed that we'd have 200,000 barrels a day of, of biofuel capability by 2030. That's right around the corner. And so people at our manufacturing sites that may not see line of sight and say, I don't see how this fits into the energy transition. I'm at a facility that makes gasoline and diesel and say, well, going forward, those refineries are likely going to be pretty active in biofuels. And that's going to take some some of your core expertise as a chemical engineer, mechanical engineer to help us transition that facility or for hydrogen or for carbon capture, which is classic uh, process engineering. And so there's a lot of talks of helping people see that even if they're in the current role they're in, they're part of the solution and they're part of the energy transition. And I think the company has actually done a very good job of spelling that out. We've done it for, you know, an external audience, but I think it's really resonated with our internal audience as well to say, "Oh, wow, Exxon is going to be part of the solution, right?" We've shown, really, regardless of how the world and the pace of the world changes, we're ready. We've got a low carbon solution business that could commercialize when the policy is there, when the the incentives are there, um, when the technology is there, we're ready to go. We've got the capabilities, we've got the scale, unlike any other company, we've got a really talented workforce.
0: Oh, it's so exciting. I'm imagining how I'm going to weave this into my millennial work because I, as as you and our audience knows, I'm obsessed with keeping the oil and gas millennial and Gen Z workforce engaged in working with us as we lead the energy transition. So thank you for that. Uh, Thank you for that, making that case. And let's just build off that a little bit because um, Exxon has committed to spending $15 billion on greenhouse gas emissions reductions projects I mean I just don't think you see that kind of scale in in many places can you talk a little bit about how that is relevant what that could accomplish
1: yeah and that's just over the next five years so and, and we've put that into three broad categories of carbon capture hydrogen production and, and biofuel production partnerships and I I could go into you know some of the details of that. I, I'll just say we've always been, we're one of the largest carbon capture companies in the world today and have been. Um, and so we're just building off some of that experience and expertise. I, I really see our scale really playing out here. We announced this initiative in Houston last year about the Houston Hub. Uh, and it was really just an idea that said, hey, we have this large industrial center with a large Number of high concentration industries, whether it's energy or manufacturing or petrochemical or refining, there's a, there's a large cluster there. And so, how about we combine all those and build a network and and capture all that? And and the numbers are really astounding: 100 million tons a year by 2040. There's not many companies. On, other than ExxonMobil that can sort of get that going. And that's picked up a lot of steam. And just this week, we announced funding of a project at one of our Baytown facilities to to activate that project. And so we're going to build a blue hydrogen plant and fuel switch at our our Baytown chemical plant, our olefins plant there, which can be up to a 30% reduction for that facility. But it also sets the infrastructure to capture, ideally, the, the bulk of Houston's industrial CO2 emissions. So that's... That really just uh, 15 billion is a big number, but it really is ExxonMobil scale and capabilities and saying, hey, we're in this. And particularly in the Houston example, we've gotten a lot of partners to sign up and said, Mm -hmm. we can do it, too. We'll do it. We'll do it with you. And that's the scale and that's the the buy in that society is going to have to have to solve this very complicated
0: problem. Well, it speaks on a number of levels to the kind of influence a company like Exxon can have. There's the dollars, there's the infrastructure. But I what I hadn't quite thought about till you gave that example is being a cornerstone for partnerships, be, uh, being the, the center of gravity that can activate other partnerships and other participants. Because one thing I do see a lot in my work is that having an idea and having money is only part of the engagement and solutions. You actually do need an organizing force in the center of gravity. So that's a really interesting component I hadn't considered before. So going from vision, visionary, just down to to something that's um, close to home for you. Exxon announced at the end of last year that you were ahead of schedule, and meaning your 2025 emissions reduction plans. Can you talk about what that works or how that worked. And if you have any lessons learned that our audience might help to activate and accelerate their own emissions reductions.
1: Well, I think I'll, and we talked about this earlier about sort of the unique nature of ExxonMobil. And we were very clear that, those announcements weren't targets. They weren't ambitions. We had a plan. And so what was new for us is, hey, we have a plan. We, we're we going to go public with that, right? We, we know the world wants to know that we're working on it. So we we made a decision to put those targets in the public domain, or not the targets, the plans. And so we knew we were going to achieve those. And we had been working on them for years. So that wasn't, the announcement wasn't some new, hey, we have some idea. It's something we've been working on. We had clear line of sight to, And the organization over-delivered, quite honestly. I, I will say just sort of a, an observation look reflecting on that is when we did put those out in the public, that was sort of a galvanizing and and, and really motivated the team and inspired them to say, let's go, we know how to do this. And again, they, they over-delivered and met the those plans four years earlier than we thought they would.
0: So you've just to tied together a couple of threads that you've brought up, and and Matt, you are I I note you're too humble to make recommendations to other people. So I'll I'll just draw some takeaways from this, which is when you take those private plans and you make them public, the operational forces, whether they be um, at the um, management level or at the field level, can become. Um, motivated to execute and to accelerate. And you'd said something earlier about how people were really rising to the challenge and excited about the challenge. So there's just an interesting component here around transparency and the way that transparency can actually enhance our work as companies that I hadn't thought of. So I think, I think that's pretty... They're pretty interesting. Let let me um, take you to our last uh, two questions here. I think it's come through very clearly how important this work is to you personally. Can you talk about your values as a leader and what keeps you showing up and doing this work? every day in the face of what I imagine is sort of constant critiques. (laughs) Um, What are those values?
1: I mean, you said it, Tisha. I take this very personally. This is, you know, I went into this work. I chose this work. This wasn't just some random evolution of, oh, hey, Matt, that ended up in uh, in a sustainability role for an energy company. This is was uh, sort of my dream role from as long as I can remember. I'm passionate for the outdoors. I've been a runner my entire life. I've always had a keen interest in helping solve these tough problems. And, and you know, maybe this isn't a positive trait or not. I'm very competitive. <laughs> and, and, and winning to me in this role is helping ExxonMobil lead in this energy transition. And I really get motivated coming in every day, because I know we're doing that. And I think the world's starting to see us doing that finally. You know, we haven't really shifted, like I was saying earlier, on the things we're working on. We're just being a little more transparent about some of that and open to the public. Uh, and that does put a bounce in my step every morning when I come in here, because I know um, we're going to make a difference. And, and, you know, I get uh, you know to your previous question on meeting our goals four years in advance. We, we've done some really tremendous work on flaring particularly in US onshore. And so you see that this works. You see you're having a, a, an impact and, and helping society meet their goals on, on the energy transition.
0: Mm, I love that. So I'd love to end on a on an optimistic note. Matt, what what are you looking forward to?
1: I look forward to watching the world transition. This, this is a once in a Generation, right? Change that we're going to see. It's not the first. It probably won't be the last, but as the world moves to another form of energy, it's a societal change. And so to see those incremental changes, and it's slow and some of it's a long game, you know, I could get into the weeds and say, you know, when I start seeing atmospheric methane concentrations starting to flatten and drop or carbon dioxide in the atmosphere start to, to flatten and drop. As an engineer, like the nerd in me is like, that's what I want to see. But you, you see it every day. I see our teams engaged uh, in the the field and and developing these and executing these roadmaps for greenhouse gas reductions. So it's just really exciting to come in almost every day and see progress on that front.
0: Matt, this has been such a fun and uh, empowering conversation. Thanks so much for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast.
1: My pleasure, Tisha.
0: That's our episode for today. Thanks to Matt Colazar for taking the time to share his insights with us. And what I find most game-changing and inspirational is the sincerity that I'm sure comes through to you, our audience, and how committed Matt is to this work of reducing emissions and accelerating, addressing climate change in his role at Exxon. I'd like to know what you found compelling. So please uh, take a moment and rate the Energy Things podcast. And you are, can also check out our work at adamantine at energythinks.com. I want to thank Adon Rubio, Lindsay Slaughter, and Michael Tanner for all the work they do to make the Energy Thinks podcast possible. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler. wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.